0: You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Um, I am your host, Iona, coming to you from London, as usual. And my guest this week is Adam Burgoyne, who is coming to us from Montreal. And I have invited Adam on to talk to us about his recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Welcome, Adam.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So maybe we could start at the beginning. When did you first... When do you first think that you began to have Um, a problem with drinking. When do you, in retrospect, think that the problem first began? What were the early warning signs that you should have noticed? And what was going on in your life at the time?
1: Well, I mean, you've really hit on one of the million-dollar questions when you first start in recovery is uh, the introspection starts, and then you try to figure out, you know, when did this start? And then you think you know, and then you go, oh, wait, no, that's not right. I could go back further than this. And that happens a, bit, a good t- dozen times for most of us, where that starting point it can be really hard to isolate. Um, in my case, I think it must have been around, I was around 22, 23 years old. Um, but again, ev- even trying to pinpoint there, I could then go further back and go, ah, oh, well, you know, there were maybe signs when I was an underage drinker in my teen years, right? So mm. uh, I, I would say that's when it became more of an issue because I, not only was I an adult and living uh, on my own in a new province, uh, so I, I had more free reign to either eat cookies for breakfast or drink beers for lunch. And it didn't start out that way. It's far more insidious than that, but it was definitely around that age when um, the the line kept moving as to what was acceptable uh, to do with alcohol, you know moving from drinking a lot on a night out with friends, which I think just about every twenty something year old has experience with. Uh, versus drinking alone or drinking at inopportune times, which itself doesn't become your, your everyday right away. So it, that that line can be really hard to nail down. But for me, I'd say circa 22.
0: Mm. And w- do you know what it was? Uh, what was it about um, about the drinking that attracted you? Or was it something you slipped into almost unconsciously? Or was what was the ple what was the pleasure that you were getting from it What was the motivation for the excessive drinking?
1: I, I tend to have the type of mind that's always going a mile a minute, uh, I, and what I liked the most about alcohol it was the depressive effects of it. I liked feeling numb. I liked not necessarily having eighty thoughts in my head at once. Um, so I, I think that. Although I wouldn't have told you this at the time, I didn't think about it with enough depth to know this, that it was definitely a form of self medication, um, trying to achieve, uh, a somewhat medicinal effect with it and, and really just enjoying the sensation of it in general too. So I think that there's more than, than one aspect of it, but that was, it was definitely the numbness that it, that it brings and the, the um, the slow the slowing down of the mental process
0: what was it that you were trying to numb yourself to
1: um you know i i grew up in a i had a very nice childhood so when i sit in meeting rooms uh, and and discuss with other addicts and, and their childhoods come up i always feel very 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 lucky For the loving family that i came from and the nice childhood that i had so i can't point to that and say that i was you know escaping abuse or or anything like that there's almost a guilt that comes with that actually to uh to feel like oh why do i have any right to feel this way um because it it certainly wasn't childhood trauma for me but i i think that there was sort of an adolescent or a a young adult trauma that i got Uh, because I came out when I was about 15 years old in 2000 and the family at that point was, was very religious. And uh, I
0: have to, have to disappoint all my female listeners, (laughs) um, at this point, I am so sorry. Um, yes, please continue.
1: So, I mean, there's all, there's all this, uh, there's all these things that you have to learn, um, when you're a young gay male that you don't really have role models for. Uh, and there, it also gave me a sense of drifting, too, because, you know, you, you sort of break the mold of what a man is supposed to be. And then, it, it in my case, it made me feel very aimless. Um, I didn't know what I was supposed to be working towards. So, you know, I, I still very much had that ingrained in me, the, th- the feeling of, you're not doing what you 're supposed to um, where where now that sounds rather silly to me because you know your life is supposed to be whatever you make of it you know it, it's it's not something really that there are even heterosexuals that break the mold in different ways, and not everyone does what others expect of them so but that that's how I felt at the time is that i i didn't have any direction, and that there wasn't really any good way in which to uh, I, did, I didn't know of any constructive ways to live.
0: Mm. So, maybe continue to tell me your story of how things developed.
1: Well, it, it was very slow at first. You know, I'm uh, I'm in my early twenties. I had just moved to Montreal, um, and so new city, new province, new language. Uh, which is part partly what I wanted in in doing that. You know, I wanted to go on an adventure and not be one of the people who uh has lived all their life in their hometown. And uh I it was part of that again want to discover a little bit more about who I was. Um so I can't exactly pinpoint when it changed from going out with friends and being social with it to uh, you know, being a, a home alone. It was it was so gradual and I still maintained friendships and I still did go out a lot of the time. But that sort of waned by about twenty-four, twenty-five-ish, where it would be mostly me drinking at home and mostly a, a habitual thing rather than something that was enjoyable and something that was occasional it just became more and more drinking to get drunk to, to try to chase that feeling and um that that set in fairly easily because uh that, that's the worst part about alcohol as opposed to uh to, to stronger substances is that they're so socially accepted that it's very easy for someone who has difficulty uh, reining in their impulses with with alcohol, because it's, it's it's especially when you know you're young and you're having fun. The culture is to encourage it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or make fun of it, or you know, even if you've you've completely. The line that you have to cross in order to get people concerned or upset with you because you've drank too much is quite a ways away from just about any other substance. You know, people will give you a lot of slack. And so um, I I can't really pinpoint exactly when that that shift happened, but it was in my mid-20s, I'd say.
0: Did you find that as well as giving you slack, people uh actively encouraged you to drink. Oh yeah. Um, because I remember um certainly when I was growing up, when I was in my twenties, um I I remember us, we had many, I went to many, not exactly wild parties. I was a very small c conservative. Um, well I still am a very small c conservative. Very small c like <laughs> Microscopic sea. Mm. Um, and so I mostly went to dinner parties and Mm -hmm. kind of informal parties at people's houses where we were sitting around talking and things, um, or even playing charades and things like that, which I, I loved. Um, but I, I, I certainly remember, um, occasions on which I didn't want to drink anymore because I was beginning to feel sick and my tolerance for alcohol was much lower then. And people were were really trying to force drinks upon me, even though I said I feel a bit ill. You know, I might vomit if I have anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um they were still uh, they I they found it very difficult to take no for an answer. Mm-hmm they were very persistent. Um, I remember, I remember that well.
1: Well, it, it, it's very true. Um, the thing th- there is a big thing though, I don't want to make it sound at all like in other people are in any way responsible for how mm. much that I chose to mm. drink, but there definitely is an encouragement there. And, um, speaking as someone who had a very high tolerance, um, it wasn't usually that I was saying no because I was at that point, but that um, I was always saying yes, and no one would really say, say much about it. Um, I could de- definitely hold my alcohol well, though, and wasn't usually the type to get too drunk at a party. So even when we were drinking at parties, um, I was able to mask it because I would be conscious of the fact that other people should not see what I was doing. So, mm. when I was really off the charts was when I was drinking alone, because then no one was there to observe what I was doing, how many I was having, or what I was saying afterwards.
0: Mm. Mm. So, how many were you having? Um, and what, what happened next?
1: Um Uh, again that was a gradual increase as well you it started out even when i began habitually drinking at home it would start out being like a six pack of beer bottles uh so uh that i would do half of that a night and then that increased to one of those a night and then you know it it just gradually keeps increasing because so does your tolerance but you're still chasing that feeling that you only get when you've had just a little too much
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and um I was around 26, 27 when it started affecting my professional life and uh, my social life a little more, where um, I was less good at keeping it under wraps socially. And also, you know, coming into work hungover and reeking of alcohol in your breath can only be passed off so many times before people notice, especially if it's a Tuesday. So... (laughs) it became more difficult for me around that time Uh, and I I, I people more stopped it was more a quiet end to some friendships in in the way that you know we didn't really stop being friends but we stopped hanging out because they didn't feel it was their place to say anything but also they didn't want to be around my antics um your
0: your your antics
1: yeah they didn't want to be around Mm. me and uh, say go out uh at four o'clock in the afternoon to have drinks on a terrace somewhere and find that i'd already been drinking and i was way farther along than anyone else was Mm, mm. and it it became um it it was also very cyclical too because there would be periods where i would realize like oh wait you've you've really done too much with this you've gone too far and i was so stubborn with my ability to you know, no no i have this under control which is very common with uh <laughs> with people who uh who are like me in this way um it was a refusal to even entertain the idea of getting help for it uh yeah. One of my bigger regrets, actually, when I first came into recovery that I had to forgive forgive myself for, was the fact that um, I had worked for my current employer previously, and just before I left for the first time, they had offered to send me to therapy for it, and I turned it basically turned it down and quit my job in response, rather than take the hand that was outstretched because it. Denial was such a strong aspect of it as a way of keeping the addiction going, keeping the gravy train going, that uh, any suggestion that there was anything wrong would have to be outright shot down. Um, so I changed jobs instead and kept the cycles going. You know, I, I, It was boom and bust. I would stop for a little bit, and then the cycle would ramp up, fairly you know on a fairly gradual fairly predictable slope and then i'd be right back to calling in sick from work and uh by by my 30s by the time i hit 30 i was drinking like they sell these awful disgusting huge uh 1.14 liter bottles of high proof beer in corner stores here which are just they're, they're as awful as you could possibly imagine. Is it even thinking about the smell of those now mm. is enough to sort of get my stomach on edge. But those, I was drinking about two of those a night. So, I mean, the amount, ima- I am surprised that my liver still functions today. Um, with the amount that I was drinking by the time I hit 30.
0: Mm. And how is that affecting? Uh, your behavior, apart from the calling in sick to work, you said that your friendships, your friendships kind of faded because people didn't want to hang around you. Um, does that mean you didn't, you didn't say or do anything um, outrageous that de- that actively damaged those friendships?
1: Um, in some cases, I did. Uh, I, I've always had a bit of um, a big mouth. You know, in the sense that I don't always think about exactly how someone else might perceive my words, and tend to be rather direct in um, in my speech. Um, that does come from a preference on my end of enjoying when people are that way with me, but I, I often forget that many people do not enjoy that at all. So, in in some cases where alcohol had fueled that and also lowered inhibitions then, yes, uh, there were cases in which uh, I was too sharp-tongued or said the wrong thing, and uh, it did cause a rift. But some of it as well was just the shame for me, um, knowing on some level what I was doing, even if I would never admit it outright. And so I just became a recluse from everyone and didn't want to put myself in the position to be seen. Because then again, that would put the apple that would that might put the whole thing in danger and make it so that I would have to face it. One of the biggest things about addiction is shame um this this idea that you know you're basically putting your head in the sand the whole time and going, "Nope, I can't see that. That's not a problem. I will just go over here and numb myself and it will just go away." And if you think about that for more than a half second, you you know that it's not true. Mm. You know the whole time that it's not true. And a lot of the time you're telling yourself, oh, you know, I really should stop or I really shouldn't get another one. As you watch yourself walk towards the store, put it down, knowing full well that you'll, you'll buy it and you'll drink it. So mm. it, it became... Really difficult for me to even function aside from, you know, I I was amazed that I could get myself to work at all, at all a lot of the time. Because, you know, saying I'm a functioning alcoholic, well, you're, you're always quite a bit less functional than you imagine you are at the time.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to be one of the differences between alcohol and other types of drugs is that most drugs have, um, they, they heighten certain faculties and they dull others. Whereas alcohol just generally dulls your brain function, um, full stop. You just feel kind of across the board hand, handicapped.
1: Uh, for, for sure. And w- which is why it was a bit surprising for me, because even through the years of drinking, um, one, one of the bigger things that it dulls as well is your sense, your inhibition. So it left me very open to trying other things. And um, so I've, I've tried just about every drug that there is. Uh, there's a select few that, it, it, it's faster to to say the ones that I haven't tried. Mm. And at the same time, none of them ever sunk their hooks in enough or or struck me in the right way. So I, it, was, it would often be on offer from someone else at a party or, or what, what have you that I would uh, try something. But then I never found myself craving it the next morning. That was all, nothing broke the spell that alcohol had over me until uh, I was 32. And uh, I was blackout drunk. And someone offered me a little glass pipe with a bulbous end on it that looked rather well, I knew what it was, you know. Um, but when you were as far gone as I was, I, I, what was dulled at that point was not knowing what it was. It was also the, the, this very strong sense of in, invincibility that I still had. Um, you know, I'd tried so many other things and nothing ever nothing ever stuck. Mm. Aside from the alcohol, so I assumed that this would be the same, and it turns out that it very much was not.
0: Mm. So this was this was crystal meth, yes, that you were offered, right? Yeah. Um, and so, what happened then?
1: Um, th- this was also very, uh, very much a thing where I thought at first that. It had been okay, because it took three times of trying it. And this was spaced out about a month and a half uh, total. And it was with the same person each time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but it only took that those three separate times before I knew that I had uh, <laughs> made a very grave error. Which, it's, it sounds so ridiculous now, you know. Um even thinking that you could uh you could try th- things like oh it's just a little heroin kind of thing <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> where it just sounds so ridiculous but at the time I wasn't exactly in my most clear of uh of mindsets and it was just another way to sort of heighten the 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 sensation of uh you know the the constant dopamine rush that I had myself in and um also was new and exciting in a a way and the the forbidden has always been something that interested me so that there was that aspect as well that it was just so uh so very not allowed that that made it even more interesting
0: do you think um since you're talking about the appeal of the forbidden um do you think there's such a thing as an addictive personality um or do you think that uh, we all struggle with different types of addictions? Um, or do you believe that it's really much more about chance and circumstances?
1: No, I, I think that there absolutely is a such thing as an addictive personality. Um, and in fact, that that's one way in which... Uh, when I started getting into recovery and going to those rooms there, I noticed that there's a disconnect between how uh, everyday people talk about addiction and how um, how it's talked about in those rooms, uh, being that when, when someone says, I'm an addict to a normal person, a normal person, um, they tend to think that means that person is using drugs r- well actively at the moment they're they're currently Mm. in the throes of their addiction
2: Mm.
1: and uh when i say that to to someone what i mean is more along the lines in the same vein as i'm a diabetic or i you know this is a condition that i have to deal with it's not one that goes away just because i stopped drinking uh that that's part of me And it's it's not really something that's described in medical literature as such, but I found it really helpful to see it that way because of how permanent it's uh, proven itself to be. You know, Mm. I've got two years of sobriety now, uh, but I, I know very well that if I didn't do What I have learned to do and keep myself within, you know, if I didn't make the daily decision to do what I need to do to keep myself on the right path, I could very easily find myself right back where I was in very short order.
0: Do you think it would be possible to substitute one addiction for another, i.e., to substitute a healthier, um, obsession, preoccupation, for the unhealthy one. So, for example, uh, I met a I met a former alcoholic who is now um, const, uh, goes surfing constantly, um, and that has become his fixation. And some fixations clearly are are healthier than others, uh, more aligned with the with our kind of larger goals of who we want to be and. What we want to do, and when I worked in, when I worked as a um, a dance teacher and a writer about dance, we often referred to tango as an addiction, and my original tango blog was called Tango Addiction. Mm. And I did feel that even in the case of tango, which is clearly not something that damages your uh, physical health. It's a you know it's a beautiful, expressive art form that makes people happy. but even in that case, I felt that there was something um, there was something worrying about the intensity of people's need. And um, yeah sorry i don't know where i'm going with this I'm. well the the question of
1: whether or not it's 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 definitely possible Mm. to Mm. replace one addiction with the other and and incidentally i did that from alcoholism to crystal myth i wasn't ever really mixing the two one Mm. completely supplanted the other superseded it and i have become somewhat of a workaholic in my sobriety uh so addictive personality again this goes to to that point where yes I have an addictive personality and no that's not just with regards to substances you know it's if you put uh, a pleasure button in front of me or something that I enjoy doing or just something that strikes my fancy I'm going to want to push that button a lot more than other people necessarily would um, and part of the work that that i've been doing in recovery is trying to notice when i'm doing this uh try to steer myself nicely into other things because learning self-love has been a part of this that's uh that's been quite important too and uh and wasn't very high coming in Mm. Uh, being kind to yourself when you make mistakes allowing yourself to uh to screw up because we all do but also Mm -hmm. you know just gently trying to steer on to something else maybe i could do something else instead uh so it, it is and especially near the start of recovery we will you will see it very very often with people who are just getting started that uh they'll Focus. They'll 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 start to fixate on something that's very interesting as a as a sort of replacement addiction. I smoked like a chimney when I was in rehab. I quit smoking about two months after that. Um, then it was sugar, sweets. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I I'd always been more of a salty, uh, snack type person after that, and sweets and food in general became very much a. Uh, <laughs> And I have a craving, let me eat an entire bag of chips kind of thing. Mm. So, yeah, it, it's absolutely replacing one with the other. But usually in early recovery, people would ju- just tell me, welcome to sobriety. In, in the sense that, you know, we, we all went through that phase. You're, you're getting used to it. Uh, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Because, again, if your first reflex is to uh, smack yourself upside the head, saying, how you know, you shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. That That's not exactly the best way to love yourself and encourage yourself into a better habit. You're just going to feel shameful. And what does an addict want to do when they're fe- feeling negative emotions? They want to use again. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, going back to your story. Yes. You said on On uh, Twitter when you were discussing this that you felt you felt actually thankful to have had the experience with crystal meth because right. that put you on a downward spiral um, and it made the problem impossible to ignore. Whereas if you had only been an alcoholic only quote unquote then you would have just continued drinking until your liver gave out. Right. So tell me about the downward spiral and the rock bottom and what happened to get you out of that.
1: Oh, uh, yes. Uh, and, and and I still maintained that it was a... Uh, that was a very lovely gift wrapped in really ugly paper. Mm. Um, in the sense that... Uh, like you say, it was, it forced me to confront what I had been denying and avoiding and uh, pushing away for years. Uh, it was within, within four months of the first time I smoked crystal meth, I was using it intravenously. Uh, I lost my apartment because the friends that I had just moved in with, uh, basically had had enough. It it was already a last chance kind of thing that they were giving me. And I very shortly uh, showed them why that was a mistake.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, so I wasn't, they they didn't throw my stuff out on the street, but I wasn't allowed to be there.
2: Mm.
1: Which, uh, you know, again, they were very kind. uh, I know now that they were very kind to me, although at, at the time, in my obsession with my own uh, with my own victimhood, I certainly wasn't cognizant of that. Um so I basically was using sex as a way to have somewhere to sleep at that point. And when you're using crystal meth, there is no shortage of other crystal meth users who basically have the same mind as I did, uh, you know, get high and have sex which is mm. a lovely and productive way to live, I have to say. Um, but that, for about four or five months, I would say that was, uh, that was how I mostly kept off the street. Although during the day or when, you know, th- there were plenty of times in which uh, I was not inside and it was not uh, comfortable and I didn't have anything to eat. Mm, um, and,
0: you, and you live in Montreal.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, I had a lovely experience around that time with a food bank, which was, again, another source of shame. Um, not, not that I think that there's anything shameful about going to food banks, uh, but again, when, when you're in the throes of addiction, anything that makes it seem like you need help is, is, is like anathema. You, you hate it. Or I hated it. I should speak for myself. Uh, because again, it, it's making you confront the fact that you are hurting yourself. You are the reason why this is happening to you. And this is no one else's fault. So it breaks up that victim narrative that's going on that allows you to sort of, uh, pretend, make believe, pretend that, oh, the, it's because the world's so bloody unfair that you're, <laughs> that you have to get high all the time. Um. Uh, yeah. But in any case, I I wasn't even able to get food from the food bank, because my ID had all expired, and they had this policy that required valid ID that showed your address on it. Which, you mm. know, I, th- I thought it was really funny that, you know, Americans get all up in arms about needing ID to vote, but um, somehow in this case, it wasn't too much to ask of someone who was out on the street. Uh,
0: mm. That's extraordinary. I don't know if that's the case here, but I, um, I will ask actually one of my housemates volunteers at the local food bank regularly. Mm -hmm. So I think he would know, but I, I don't think so. Um, I think you can just show up.
1: I I was Um, rather surprised myself. I have to say (laughs) I didn't expect, uh, I I didn't expect that and, and, I was rather snarky with the person who, you know, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't their idea at the time, but uh, I was hungry and I was uh, pretty incredulous mm. that mm. Uh, that I was being told. I said, I said to him, "Are you worried about people driving in from Ontario to get, you know, these sweet food bank deals because it was a provincial residence that they were looking for?" So you'd have to drive for at least two and a half hours to get to the next province. Mm, mm. Or or maybe they're worried about Americans. That's about an hour and 15 minutes away.
0: (laughs) Mm, Maybe.
1: (laughs) In any case, I was, I was completely Mm. flabbergasted by it and it didn't exactly um, endear me to the, this notion that we're, we're oh so good at at taking care of our, um, uh, taking care of people here because you know quebec has very very high taxes that pay for social services and things like this and this isn't necessarily tied to that but i wasn't exactly thinking about where funding comes from when when this happened right i all i knew was i asked for help once i managed to finally summon the the courage and you know it it was made easier through the 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 severe hunger I was experiencing i I ended up losing about forty pounds in in the period of one month um, mm. during this period uh, so that one time I finally got the courage to to ask for help, I was sort of rebuffed from it and it was it was not very pleasant
0: and how did you get the money for the meth? How did you get hold of the meth how did that How did that work
1: well um at first it was using up every credit facility that was available to me and um, th- this was something that sort of fluctuated where i would try to uh fluctuated with my my drinking when it was still that uh where i would try to pay things down a bit and then i'd end up using the the available credit again because uh Addicts are not great with money. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're not the greatest. And any any available funds will be quickly uh, reallocated towards the cause, the singular and uh, and consuming cause of keeping the high going. And when that didn't work during this period, it was basically me hanging around certain people that I knew would let me use with them in exchange for sex. So it was a form of prostitution, really, um, mm-hmm. that basically allowed that to go on as long as it did. Because I uh, had gone on leave from work shortly after, uh, shortly after I started using meth, and that was really the, the downward spiral, because then you've got nothing forcing you to uh, be presentable for anyone. Uh, because you know it's um, whereas alcohol is a depressant, uh, methamphetamine is very much a stimulant. Um, it's an extremely potent stimulant, and it, when you're in active use of it, things like uh, not sleeping for four to five days, and you know it, it personally gave me so many jitters, and I am I was already someone who is rather a little too meticulous about you know. Skin blemishes and things like that. I'd scratch, but you know, at them absently, kind of thing even beforehand. But this developed into a very much a a tick while I was using that. I would basically uh, perform auto mutilation, where I was convinced that you know that uh, that I had uh, things underneath my skin and whatnot, and basically tore my skin apart. Uh, mm. Oh yeah, it was it was it was really really very endearing. I assure you. Um, so then, you know, mostly wanting to stay inside obviously was amplified with that because people would take one look at me gaunt, covered in pock marks, um, and you know it, it wasn't very attractive, even to me. I, I tended to avoid mirrors during this period,
2: yeah. and
1: um, I was not What's- really approved to be on leave from work. So they stopped mm-hmm. paying me and they really should have as like, if I, if I were someone who worked in human resources or whatnot, uh, they, they really should have fired. me. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. was not doing what I was supposed to. I was not um, being responsible with any of it really. And it was only really through my own manager at the time um, who fought them They wanted to let me go. Uh, Human Resources did at the time, but my manager basically fought. And I finally relented on on going into rehab uh, at at the last possible instant and was able to keep my job.
0: Wow, it's amazing you were able to keep your job. Uh, So how long was this period when you were supposedly, quote unquote, on leave?
1: This was about I uh, uh, would have been uh, May twenty eighteen to October twenty eighteen, so it was really not that long in the terms mm-hmm. of uh, in terms of how how long most people who uh, start using meth use before they try to or are able to to stop it was a very short period but uh in terms of not showing up for work when you're supposed to and still having a job at the end of it, my god like they
0: <laughs> that's astonishing oh. uh, why do you think they cut you so much slack
1: um well first what I,
0: what, what was your job sorry um maybe you should explain that first
1: i, I work um as a uh, at the time, I was working in IT support for, uh, I still am, but just in a different role uh, for for a bank. Mm. Um, and I think that the real reason why why I was able to stay on is twofold. Um, number one is that I was actually honest with them from the beginning what was going on. I told them it was because I, of addiction, and uh, they treat that more like a health issue than a disciplinary one, even though there's a lot of overlap there a lot of the time. And I, I wasn't completely balking at doing things; it's just that I was missing deadlines and not, you know, not submitting paperwork and not. Uh, not getting things done in a timely manner. So, but they, I think that they were seeing enough, uh, enough improvement from me, or at least enough good, uh, like good faith, because it, it's, it's very cyclical. The, the throes of addiction, even, even when you're in that spiral, there are still going to be quite a few times and, and moments in which you're saying no I really have to stop this I really have to get control of this and you know usually it's about once per day right <laughs> and then you start using again and you go trash mode and completely lose it for one more day and then you say the next day I've got to stop so I was doing mm. enough I think that just just barely and also that they they knew what was going on and that it was uh, they were trying to steer me towards rehab that eventually did come to pass
0: Mm. so you were actually doing some work during this period no how was no okay um
1: but i I was i was doing enough of what they they required of me to get the ball rolling on on rehab i think oh uh,
0: right okay i i i get you um so what kind of rehab did you do and um, and actually, why did you agree to rehab? You agreed finally because it was your last chance of not losing your job. Was that the, the impetus? Or what was it that, that changed and made it possible for you to actually go and do the rehab, which you had been resistant to up until then?
1: Um, I, I ended up doing uh, a 21 day rehab, um, inpatient where the kind where you go in and they take your phone and you're you're sleeping there for for 3 weeks and that there was a a whole program to to go through while I was there um getting to that point uh really was it was really the the overdose that I experienced that that took me there uh because I was on the cusp for quite a while and trying again a lot of the time with addiction um it's a case of seeing where the limit is and if no one shows you the door and if you're not uh, actually being told that this is your last chance mm. the urge there is to see if you can keep doing what you are doing because that is again what that that's the loop that you're caught in right even if you know that logically you can't keep it up you're going to want to try
0: <laughs> mm, yeah
1: but yeah. um i had used intravenously with a friend uh, one night, and uh, my my arms and legs went numb, and I was getting pins and needles in them. My lips went blue, and um, I was feeling very dizzy and lightheaded, and also couldn't I couldn't feel anything when I put my hand over my chest, and so it was really. Super worrying at the same time as seeing uh, arms and legs tinged purple. So he tried to send me to uh, not the emergency room, but uh, basically a a drug and rehabilitation center's emergency area kind of thing, usually where people go to sleep it off, and they also run tests on you and see if you need more medical attention. But um, I got out of the taxi and basically went to the apartment where I was not supposed to be and went up in that room and went to bed. And that was a very terrifying experience because it was, um, I don't know why I did that actually. I, I don't remember having any, any conscious thought of why, but it was probably something to do with again, the feeling of not wanting help of, of, uh, no, I can handle this kind of bullshit. Uh, but yeah, I, I remember feeling a sense of wonder at whether or not I would open them again when I was feeling my eyes close. Because mm. mm. I had been, I had been awake at that point for five days, I think. Right. And, you know, it, even if I'd wanted to, it would have been physically impossible for me to, to stay awake, and I think I slept for about 34 or 36 hours. It was a very strange feeling waking back up again mm. when you're not sure that you would have.
0: <laughs> right. Were you happy to wake back up again?
1: I was surprised. I was happy. Um, I was relieved, and that surprised me because um, I, I actually, through... Through all, throughout my life, I had tried to commit suicide three times. Um, so it was never this idea of, uh, being happy that I was waking up was pretty foreign to me because, uh, I was stuck in a very, uh, self-pitying kind of cycle. Mm. And so my, my wanting the pain to stop was, was interpreted by myself as I want to die. So in, it it took a what, what I see as a near death experience for me to realize that no in fact that's not really what I wanted. I just wanted to stop feeling like things hurt all the time.
0: Wait, you tried to commit suicide 3 times?
1: A total of 3 times in my life, yeah.
0: Um what uh when? <laughs> Why?
1: <laughs> what <laughs> yes um, the first time was actually when I was 14 um, and I my father had always had a, a very well-stocked uh, workshop in the house where he would work on uh, handyman type things uh, he had a lathe in there and a, a bandsaw just work on wood and, and general projects around the house and when I was 14 years old uh, th- this was spurred on by the, uh, the, the horrifying realization of being a homosexual, um, and that it wasn't going away and that, uh, you know, I didn't think that I could, uh, cope with that. And so that's,
0: that's extraordinary. What year was that?
1: 1999.
0: Were, were you very, were you religious? What was, what was the source of?
1: my family was, yeah. That, Church right. every Sunday, four times in one weekend, on Easter and Christmas weekends, uh, altar boy, choir boy, you know, we, we the life revolved around the church in, in many ways. Right.
0: Fields. Because by the late 90s, um, I mean, I'm surprised that you found it so hard to accept it at such a kind of late point in history.
1: Well, a lot of the time for people who are not yet out of the closet, the the idea the ideas conjured up by your own head are much more terrifying than the real world would actually um, you know that it's it's not actually as scary once you've done it. But when you haven't, it's terrifying. And especially, you know I was a it was, this was in a rather small suburb of a rather small city in a rather small province in Canada. So it, uh, this was um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So, I wouldn't call it backwards there, but thing, the, the feeling of how advanced things were on gay rights would probably have felt very different in London, in the UK, or even in Montreal at that point than it would have there.
2: Mm.
1: You know, mm. the, the only things that I saw during that period on TV about gay people were them dying of AIDS. So, and that, mm. that's, that's how it was back then. You didn't see uh, any real. Um, that, that was life as far as, uh, the, the television that my parents watched and therefore what was, what was pretty much seen in the house, you know, investigative reports on, uh, on gays dying of AIDS was pretty much all that I'd known about it. Um, and then aside from that, it wasn't mentioned.
0: Right. Even that, um, actually, I will need to look this up and, uh, so, I don't want to assert this with too much confidence, but um, even then, I think people were already um, living with HIV um, on medication at that time. Um, quite, uh, They were living with it as a, a chronic managed condition, um, like diabetes. Much more so
1: than it had been in, say, the mid to late 80s, for sure.
0: That- right. Um, and of course, uh, this, this has been one of the huge success stories of, mm-hmm. that that I've seen over my life lifetime. So one of my close friends has um, is HIV positive, mm-hmm. and he simply goes once a month to get his medication. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think now that they're now they are sending it because of COVID, <laughs> uh, but he goes once a month to get his HIV medication, which is free, um, and. He has no symptoms, and he also cannot transmit it to anyone else.
1: Right, uh, undetectable status. Yeah. Um, it, and, that's extraordinary,
0: absolutely extraordinary. It is very um,
1: much more um, manageable now, which which is definitely a good thing. But I, again, it, it was my adolescent brain catastrophizing uh, things, mm-hmm. and uh, I just didn't see... I was just terrified of the whole thing. I was terrified of losing my family. I was terrified I was just terrified in general. And I walked into my dad's workshop and just chugged the first thing that, uh, that had the poison label on it. Drank quite a lot of it too. Turned out it was car polish. Doesn't taste great. Mm, Yeah. Not great.
0: So did, um, when you recovered from that, presumably, did you tell your parents?
1: I, yeah, I, I kind of had to force it. It was kind of forcing myself out of the closet because they were bewildered by it, of course. Because mm. again, mm. I, I will repeat this. I came from a very, very loving family. Um, mm. there, were, there was no issues of abuse or, uh, or neglect, you know, nothing even remotely uh, in that vein. So, I mean, that they were completely blindsided by it um even though i'm sure they had ideas about uh maybe me not being quite like the other boys um it, it certainly was through no uh no fault of theirs and i tried my best to hide it that, that that's always been my reflex you know as as much with the the drinking issue as it was with my my um my homosexuality or my, my, my struggle with regards to that is that if you've, you know, I've always had the cocooning reflex to not say anything about it, keep it to yourself and just fulminate. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's not the greatest reflex, you know, it's, it's not very constructive, but it, it's one of the things that I've had to try to uh, to work around.
0: So what was the second occasion?
1: The second occasion was uh, this. The the second and third occasions were both uh, near the end of my drinking career, Um, and each time was just uh, drinking enough alcohol to get severe alcohol poisoning and end up in the ICU. Mm.
0: Um, And that that was on purpose. Yeah, you feel right. So you you actually were um, you were consciously trying to kill yourself by drinking that much
1: why so it, it was very um you know i look back on that now and i i can't even it's hard to, to to look back and to think that you know you were so close to a realization or um an epiphany that could have saved you a lot of pain but sometimes it's that pain that you've gone through that really makes it possible for you to move forward or to learn you know, I, I could have listened to other people's addiction stories all day long for that certain period and around the time that, I de- that I've declined help, uh, you know, any number of times really. And it, it never quite gets in the same way falling flat on your face does. And, you know, it, the pain is, is a very good teacher.
0: I want to return to your narrative. So you opened your eyes there in the room in Mm. that shared flat, which you had been uh, barred from. Yeah. Um, And what happened next? Uh,
1: Within about, I want to say within five or six days, I I checked into rehab. Um, And it was only because they don't, they didn't have any, any free beds at that time that it wasn't sooner. I wanted to go in, I, I was afraid I'd lose my resolve. Um, mm. but it turns out that um you know that 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 experience has really scarred me in the best possible way. Um when I sta- when I got out of that rehab, and it it was very much involved with the 12 step programs, which is what I have been doing since. And um uh, the group therapy aspect of that has helped a lot. Being able to um, open up in a room full of people that have no goddamn business judging you because you've heard what they've done and you've heard the things that they <laughs> that they went through too. It's it's very much a non-judgmental kind of space where you can uh, you can be honest about about the things that you've done and the things that you said and the things that uh, that gnaw at you
0: was uh, this an a was this an AA style style um yeah. right was it secular or was it this um affirming belief in a higher being and yeah pushing well, yourself
1: that's the head? thing too isn't it AA was very classically uh, catholic i believe or at least mm. a very christian um and they've sort of grafted this higher power conversation onto it uh in more recent years, because it's no longer the default assumption that everyone that just everyone is Christian, um, and in some ways, I think that that, that 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 is an earnest thing. You know, I'm very much an atheist and and have been quite some time. So that that was a difficult aspect for me to uh, to deal with, and it was pr- one of the primary reasons that I refused for so long to even entertain the idea of trying um, one of those meetings. And so I would say it's not secular necessarily. You will have certain members that are very much more, uh, w- who have very much more of a religious bent than others. Um, it's always in a, in a spirit of respectful dialogue, though. It, it's, it's not considered polite, for example, to in any way imply. That you need to believe in God in order for you to be recovery, you know, in proper recovery or doing the right things. In fact, in those rooms, one of the best things about it is that very early on you learn that you speak for your damn self. You know, you, when you speak, you you don't say we, you don't say you, you say I, which is why you may hear me occasionally catch myself because it's it's a very common thing that 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 people do is speak in terms of, well, you should do this, or we do this, or you do that, when really you're talking about your own experience. So maybe talk to that, and other people who see themselves in it are free to do so, but at least you're not pontificating to others. Giving sermons is is pretty frowned upon in in those spaces, which is, again, why someone who's an atheist and very much not religious now can stand to be there, is because there, there at least is very much... Um, An understanding there that no one is get to be giving sermons
0: Mm, mm. I know that there's there's quite a lot of controversy over the AA style of therapy Mm. Um, and I do wonder I know that you are obviously only speaking for yourself Mm -hmm. so I do wonder whether it works for everyone and by that I don't mean some people just simply fail altogether to recover but I mean some people may be better suited to um, a different approach, not just because of the the higher power hmm. framing, but also um, I know there are some psychologists who argue for a harm reduction approach hmm. um, because they feel that the diagnosis that the person is, is an addict in that sense that you outlined, um, somebody who will always, you will always be an addict, meaning that is your psychological frailty, a, k- a kind of permanent state, um, rather than an experience that you went through or a behavior.
2: Mm.
0: And I'm, I, I'm thinking about Foucault's, um, famous line from the history of sexuality where he says, the sodomite had been a temporary aberration, and the homosexual was a species. Mm-hmm. It's something like that. It's a little bit analogous to that almost. Well, it's like the drunk
2: was a Diana temporary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like the drunk was a temporary aberration, and the addict is the is 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 a species. Um, so I know that some people feel that that can make it seem that you are. Um, powerless in the face of this substance and it can seem catastrophizing and might for some people uh, lead to a kind of black and white thinking in which if they have even one drink they're going to go straight back down the road to complete addiction. Mm. Um, whereas if they hadn't seen themselves in that way they might have been able to handle a, a setback like that. Um, and it may also discourage some people from reducing their drinking because they feel the only options are drinking as they currently do or complete abstinence and rehab, etc. So I have heard those arguments. I don't know how you feel about them.
1: Um, again, speaking only for myself. Mm. My experience has taught me that harm reduction for me cannot work um, because that, that was the approach that I was taking uh, sure. earlier on. When when I say that I was stopping, you know, I only started doing 12-step uh, after rehab. Well, when I started rehab, so in October of 2018, I had stopped uh, by myself, you know, no support system, just uh of my own volition done the reset method where, you know, I think it was about for a total of five months, I didn't drink at all and then tried to ease myself back into it. Within two weeks, I was getting smashed alone again. You know, Mm -hmm. there was that I have heard lots of people talk about harm reduction, uh, usually in an academic kind of way, uh, very much detached from, the lives and realities of addicts that I have met. Uh, I'm also listening to a whole bunch of other addicts tell me pretty much the same thing on a regular basis. Now, does that mean that people who have sex, a success with harm reduction don't exist? Certainly not. I, I I'd never, you know, even when people say you're an atheist, that means you say God doesn't exist. I say, no, I just listen to your proposition for what God is. And I say, I don't believe that. You know it's the mm-hmm. same it's the same thing with this. I have heard tell of lots of people who who do this who you know suddenly uh, after doing however method that they have tried with harm reductions, now they are able to have one drink of uh, of wine with dinner and then uh, not start out any any spirals or, or anything of the sort. but I've never met one of these people
2: mm. Mm-hmm.
1: I've I've never had someone say that to me that you know this is how I used to drink and this is you know now I'm able to do this and this is how I did it. Again, my meeting someone is not the the, the a prerequisite for them existing, but uh, my own experience and that of pretty much everyone I've I've come in contact with is that you know they've all heard of these people and yet not really they can't name one from their friend group, let's say
0: Right, right.
1: Um, and that may just yeah. be a function of twelve step people not hanging out with uh, you know with people who do harm reduction. It's just I'm maybe I,
0: I mean, there are, of course some things for which harm reduction is the only strategy, uh, so um, in the case of eating disorders, for mm-hmm. example, because you can't just abstain from food. The other thing I wanted to ask you is uh, how you feel about the legalization or decriminalization of drugs.
1: Um, I'm actually more in favor of it, uh, especially more towards a, um, I believe it's Portugal, Mm -hmm. where they've been doing that fine experiment where it's treated more as a health issue than it is um, uh, a disciplinary one, which again, that was the reason why I kept my job right? If, mm-hmm. if they had mm-hmm. taken the hardline approach to it. And we have to say already, I'm Canadian, we have very much more uh, a lax attitude towards uh, drugs in general, but may- maybe more so cannabis, which of course is, is legal now. But e- even otherwise, it's it's usually seen more as a, as a personal issue and a health concern, uh, less than a character failing necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I think that that model is more what I'd like to see. And Mm -hmm. the the other thing about it is that when, when these substances are illegal, oftentimes their, their contents, you know, the whole issue that's being had with fentanyl is because that's an extremely potent, uh, psychoactive drug but that's also very easy to to overdose on but the the only reason why they 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 don't want to kill their clients you know drug lords would rather that they stay alive to to keep buying drugs it's just that the the methods that they're using in order to produce these substances um are often not with uh, the same sort of quality controls we would see with uh you know legally produced medications so I'd rather incentivize people away from these things, but keep them legal or at least not criminal you know uh, you, we could have uh them still not be completely legal and say as as easy as going and and buying a gravel at the uh, at the pharmacy but there's a middle ground there where you don't have to throw people in prison over it either you know and stigmatizing um or at least you know, criminal charges against someone who's an addict is pretty much going to solidify them in that rung of society. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're never going to get out. All, it's already hard enough. I don't think it should be made harder by kicking someone while they're down.
0: Yeah. And we are, as I think you pointed out, um, or you pointed this out implicitly when you talked about the social acceptability of, of alcohol, um, we are very, also very. Um, uh, hypocritical about this. Mm-hmm. We don't ban alcohol, which many, many people are addicted to in a way that's extremely harmful to them, um, and which kills many more people. And we don't do that partly because we know that that doesn't work, having actually attempted to do it, mm-hmm. or the Americans at least attempted to do it during prohibition. The Indians are still doing a lot of that. So there are many dry days and there are some areas which are, are dry areas where you can't get, you can't officially buy alcohol in that particular town or district. Um, And all that does is stimulate people's ingenuity Mm -hmm. in obtaining alcohol. And I know that firsthand. And it was actually the, ironically, the dry holidays in India are the, the most drunken times. <laughs> in- Indians do drink less than, than, uh, than we drink in the West. Mm. There definitely is much less, uh, drunkenness is much less socially acceptable and there is not a culture of drinking with meals. Um, but on the evening before those kind of holidays when you couldn't drink, um, my friends would be messaging me on WhatsApp saying, "You know that tomorrow is a dry day. You'd better get to the bottle shop and get get some get your alcohol now." And uh, so I went down there, and there was an enormous queue, and people were buying like like they were going to be forbidden it for a month, and it was just twenty four hours, so <laughs> it's really counterproductive.
1: Um so yeah, I mean I we were talking earlier about how for me you know making things forbidden is a very big attractant from for, for me. You know, it it's very much more interesting for me when things are forbidden. And I know that I'm not alone with this. It's the same thing there. Sometimes the best way to get someone to do something is to tell them they're not allowed to do it.
2: Mm, mm.
1: Or at least to get them to want to do something. Mm suddenly it becomes very tantalizing and, and, and whatnot. So I, I would like to see smarter uh, laws around drugs because clearly outright banning them does not work. I don't know how many more years we need to see more and more proof that not only does it not stop the demand, but it doesn't stop the supply either. If I wanted to, right here and now, I could go to... You know, i could I could get any number of these substances that are supposedly banned, you know it's not quite as easy as walking into a store, but they could be obtained rather easily so i mean the, the, this uh, this notion that we can just ban them away it it's it's silly
0: mm. well uh, where I live, there's a lot of drug dealing um and two guys often park their car in our street at the end of the street. <laughs> uh and so i think that's where where if i wanted to obtain drugs i guess i could just walk up with some cash and knock on the window
1: Mm. pretty much i mean it it, it's it's a question of knowing where to get them and if you don't know usually it's not that hard to find out so even though i'm someone who does not partake in those things anymore i think that it's it's not a good use of resources to try to eliminate them entirely. Um, nor is it a good idea to take a punitive approach to uh, dealing with addiction. And, you know, by and large, if you're dealing humanely and also effectively with addiction, you're also tackling homelessness. Because one, the, the kinds, especially in developed countries where there is a safety net, um, people always fall through the cracks. You know, there, there are going to be those that, that don't fall into the categories that are there. They don't get the help that they need at the time. But even though anyone could fall homeless and need help for a certain amount of time, usually the ones who are continuously homeless and stay so, it's hand in hand with addiction. It, this is very, very, very common. It's because one of the reasons why they're not getting the help that they need is because they don't want it. You know, you you cannot help an addict who doesn't want to help themselves. Mm. It, it's not possible.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking back to what you said about your desire to be numbed, mm. which is something that Bridget Phetasy, uh, who I also interviewed about her. recovery from addiction (laughs) uh we talked about a number of other things as well Mm. but we did uh we did spend quite a lot of time talking about her recovery from addiction and she was also primarily an alcoholic um she did some other drugs but she was primarily an alcoholic and she also talked about this wish to just be numbed Mm -hmm. to just kind of black everything out yeah and um I'm really curious as to whether mindfulness techniques might help with that. Meditation and other things where you try to sit with your thoughts or experiences where you try to, where you become very absorbed in the experience where what you are aiming for is a greater kind of sense of presence. Absolutely. I um I had this, um, letter correspondence with Nir Ayal mm-hmm. on the website letter. We had a public correspondence, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes mm-hmm. about his book, Indistractable, which is, um, advice for people who have technology addictions, mm. which is something that I see all the time and which really bothers me. People not, uh, people just not being able to let go of their phones mm-hmm. and not being able to be there even during an enjoyable experience, mm. even whilst they're out with friends or having dinner together or doing something fun, even on holiday, still are escaping from that into kind of just aimless scrolling on Facebook and things.
1: I used to be far worse at that than I am now.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But uh Meditation and mindfulness is one of the big tools that I, that I use to Mm. stay on the right path. You know, I, I have to meditate, uh, pretty much every day. It, uh, Mm. it really helps me to avoid catastrophizing things. You know, one of the, the reasons why I felt like I needed to feel numb all the time was just that everything was the end of the damn world in my head. You know, because I I just always felt confronted by every experience that I was having or every emotion that I was feeling. And I didn't realize that you can actually just set those down and try to come back to a calmer place. And then when you come back and you pick that up later, because you do have to, you have to deal with the emotions that you feel, right? Yeah. But once you come back to your center and then you come back and look at this again, it's it's like the difference between the scary monster cg in the movie and then coming back and you pick up this this lifeless mask afterwards where you see where it kind of all right i kind of see where the scariness came from but this is this is really nothing i can do this you know that there's i have that feeling a lot since i started to to meditate and to um some people prefer journaling which you know you're just sort of writing your thoughts out and i have done that um but meditation is definitely my favorite of them because it's it's allowed me to uh really step away from that feeling of catastrophe if only for a few minutes and sometimes that's really all you need right if i if i was feeling especially near the start of covid when i was working so much that uh that i barely uh, that that was insane i think i did 98 hours in one week once Um, my god but the times where i was so stressed out that i felt like some you know i was going to collapse and then i go okay adam it's take a few minutes take five minutes and then i would meditate for five minutes and i would come back to it and i'd still be busy right you know even taking the five minutes was difficult but once i did i was way more effective and it didn't feel like I was on the verge of some sort of disaster anymore. I, I, I could actually look at something with fresh eyes and then, oh, okay. Sometimes it's all, it's just a little breathing that I needed, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I was, um, yeah, I, well, I want, I want to talk a little bit about the COVID thing, but mm. I just, um, found the quotation from near IL, which I found rather oh, extraordinary. Yes. Um, so he has two books and what the first one hooked is a sort of guide to, to people who are designing products to tell them how to get people addicted to them.
2: Mm.
0: Uh, so he's, um, uh, he's, you know, a user turned therapist in a sense. Um, but in that book, he says the ultimate goal of a habit forming product is to solve the user's pain mm-hmm. by creating an association so that the user identifies the company's product or service as the source of relief. Mm-hmm. And then in Indistractable, he says, he puts it even more strongly. He says, all behavior is driven by the desire to escape discomfort. Mm-hmm. It's all about pain, which means if all behavior is driven by the desire to escape pain, then time management is pain management. Mm. I found that a really extraordinary um, thing to write, and this is a very successful, wealthy, happily married um, man who says that he doesn't suffer from depression. Mm. Sorry, I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I wanted to put it out there because oh, I, was, I very much agree. I was so strongly uh, reminded
1: it it's definitely and again you know i i'm struck when i'm th- when i was thinking back to my mindset back then i was so struck by how you know remembering how awful i thought everything was and you know how much pain i i, I obviously felt i was in but looking back on it i feel such a different force of perspective that I almost feel like laughing because it's, you know, one of the big things that I've learned to do in recovery is to step back and look at something again. So if I feel like, say I want to look at something and go, Oh, this is terrible. Like, Oh, then why is this so hard for me kind of thing? Okay. Step back. And I want you to look at that again and tell me what's good about it and how, you know, how grateful you are for what you do have from that. What are the good things about it? And it's always possible every time. So, you know, even if I can sit there and say, yes, that fentanyl overdose that I had was a good thing because it, f- it basically made it impossible for me to continue living in denial. So it was a harrowing experience. But at the same time, it, w- it was, there was a, something to be grateful for from that. Right.
2: Mm.
1: So. It, it, Perspective is is such an important thing with this. Where whereas before I was always wondering why things weren't going my way while doing nothing to, you know, I wasn't doing anything. I was sitting there wondering why happiness wasn't falling into my lap, and it's like, well, no shit, cupcake. Like, what do you think this? You know, you, you sit there, one going, oh, poor me. All the time and not doing anything in order to improve your condition or improve your 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 situation and it's like well it's childish really that kind of mindset and i'm not i'm not ashamed to say that i, I feel extremely childish looking back at the way that my my mind operated and it's not to to say anything except for perspective is is, is really everything you know it's difficult for me to, to imagine going back to that mindset now. (laughs) Mm.
0: Do you feel, um, so you said that you will always be an addict. Mm. Um, Have, have there been moments when you felt um, especially vulnerable when you felt that you might actually return to the addiction?
1: I've had uh, moments where I felt because of the, the strength of resolve that I've sort of built up, um, I feel like that that sort of insidiousness that's that's inherent to addiction has always made me feel um, like it's always been dressed up in my head. Because, you know, the, the things that an addict says to themselves in their head, like, oh, just one, it'll only be just the one, the, the sort of minimization of the harm potential that's there, or the minimization of the harm that's already occurred mm-hmm. instead of thinking things like, Oh, I would love to go out and get some meth and smoke it. It's never been that. Cause that's so easy to, to shoot down. Right. Right. Um, the thought that comes into my head now is something like, oh, I really feel like doing something crazy or doing something I shouldn't, you know, because it's, it's vague enough that it gets to just sort of hang there. Uh, and doesn't provoke the same sort of alert response, even though I've trained that sort of sort of response out of myself. It's not as as reflexive. Um, so to to answer your question, yes, I have had those kinds of feelings, um, and it's usually predictably after I've had bad news, or I'm having a bad day, or screwed something up. Because you know I'm not this this enlightened guru that doesn't uh, have any issues processing or dealing with the emotions that i <laughs> that i experience um anymore it's more just that i've learned better how better to cope with them and some days i do that really well and other days not so well um, mm. the one thing that i'd say is a constant is that in stark contrast before recovery I, i'm now Pretty much always, I've never lost the belief now that whatever happens, I will deal with it and it will work out. Because even if that turns out not to be true, I won't have wasted my time wondering and worrying about how things are going to screw up or how I'm going to get them wrong or what disaster awaits me next. I can't think that way. You want You'd mentioned the the COVID period. I would say that that was another thing to be grateful for—the fact that I was working so much during mm. that mm. period. Because I did, you know, I know people who lost their jobs. I know people who uh, lost their sobriety after extended periods. In one case, it was thirty years that he'd been sober and uh, lost, uh, fell off the horse near the start of COVID, and to my knowledge, has not got back on yet. But for me, working that much, uh, it gave me the chance to focus only on the things that I could control, which is a huge, That's one of the, a pillar. One of the pillars of recovery for me is narrowing your focus and not concentrating so much on these grand problems of the world, which really are often, oftentimes when an addict or when I was focusing on things like that, it was in order so that I could not focus on the things that I do have control over and the ways that I can influence my, my life. So, so COVID was great for that because I didn't have any choice. Or at least the choice was easy to make. You know, I think that there's always a choice, but, uh, being that busy and having to have my head down and being in crisis mode, I didn't really feel too much uh, fatigue until I would say the end of May when things finally went from crisis level uh, down to just very busy, where it remains to this day. Uh, mm. <laughs> but when that adrenaline started to wear off, I, I needed to take a week off because it was just like a ton of bricks fell.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: But uh,
0: I was going to ask it's not, so it's not a craving. A physical—you don't feel physical cravings for the those substances, or you don't feel nostalgia for the no. specific um, feelings that you got from uh, drugs. Um, but but it's more of a kind of existential restlessness.
1: Uh, yeah, I would say that that's true, um, and it, it's also made easier by the fact that um, I actually have a strong revulsion to. Uh, both drugs and alcohol now if I uh, my boyfriend still does drink he doesn't generally do it around me but and and certainly when he does it's like a you know he's mindful of it which is great because I don't tell him to do this he just sort of no, no one wants to be drunk on their own. Uh, well, I, I guess I shouldn't say no one, but he doesn't fancy the idea of drinking around someone who doesn't drink, which you know is completely normal.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but if I if I were to smell it on his breath, sometimes that's enough to just turn my stomach. You know, smelling alcohol is not fun for me now. Uh, even the thought of certain smells of alcohol, certain types of those bloody hand sanitizers. Uh, I'm sorry. I know that's a really bad swear for British people, and I shouldn't say it. Uh, really? Apparently what,
0: hand, it hand sanitizers is
1: a swear. Oh, bloody is, isn't it?
0: Oh, fuck that. Who cares?
1: <laughs> but certain certain of those, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's actually, etha- I doubt it's actually ethanol in them, but it's probably methanol, which smells similar. It's very a very sort of almost like you're putting tequila on your hand smell. Those ones right, are right, very yeah. difficult for me. <laughs> um, and thankfully, it, meth is not a smell that you usually get a whiff of walking down the street. Uh, but uh, cannabis is legal here. And so it's, it's fairly common to, to smell that. And it's it's got a very pungent odor. And I'm not a huge fan of oh, that Oh,
0: yes. I absolutely cannot stand <laughs> the smell. Um, and even though I quite enjoy smoking pot... But I certainly don't have an addiction to it. I mean, I have no cravings to do it at all when it's right. not around mm. um I do it only when I'm offered. I think the last time was probably at least three years ago okay. but i but even though i quite I don't mind the smell when I'm actually um smoking myself, I cannot stand uh smelling it as a third person.
1: It's not great um yeah. Um,
0: Like when we're in our garden, for example. (laughs) It's a very frequent smell wafting on the wind across from next door.
1: Yeah. So, so, Um, yeah, a direct uh, idea to go directly toward those substances is, is again, made easier, I think, by painful experiences that I've had. Uh, Again, proving to be gifts because I don't uh, have the same level of struggle with it that perhaps some other people would.
0: Right. I'd like to um, ask some of the questions that people have asked uh, on Twitter. Sure. Some of them, some of them you really have already answered. Someone asked uh, about your family. Did your family know about your problems? At what stage did they find out? And did you get any help from them?
1: They knew about the alcoholism. Uh, and that they'd seen evidence of that in front of their own eyes for for a while, and um, they, they we don't live in the same province, first of all, uh, but they they knew enough about alcohol being a problem for for quite some time, um, and they they did try to help. But again, I I said earlier that you can't help an addict who doesn't want to help themselves. Uh, and I'll I'll reiterate that here. Mm-hmm. i I did not want to help myself. I was just in denial mode, and everything that they did for me or tried to do for me um, backfired, as usually it does. You know, if you try to help someone who's in the throes of this and they don't want the help, you're never going to get the the desired result out of it. It will always backfire. And I don't usually like to speak in absolutes like this, but I would say that um, my family got used to the idea that I was going to do what I was going to do, and uh, they didn't particularly enable me too much. But there was some of that going on um but it, I, I spoke to my mother about this recently, and she said something along the lines of, I, just, "I the whole time I was just wishing that there was something that I could have done to help. And I said to her the same thing, you know, Mom, you couldn't have helped me. You know, it, 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 there's nothing for you to have done here. Mm-hmm. I had to be the one to pick up the ball and to start rolling it. it there, there's no other way around this. And that, that's the most painful part for people who are around addicts that they love. Um, because they want to do something, right? And they feel guilty that they can't fix this person's problem. But that's a feeling that you really have to try to temper if you're around someone who's got an addiction problem, because that's only going to lead you to do things that not only will not help them, but will probably actively hurt them. If you enable an addict to keep using, guess what? That's exactly what they're going to do.
0: Mm. So someone else has asked um, what lifestyle changes were helpful during the initial stages of your recovery?
1: Um, I'd say that, it, well, especially if you if you mean it, you know, um, and this is why people say that it takes rock bottom to get them on the right path because the initial jolt that you have to do you have to have this happen well you have to make this happen um is is very very sweeping changes you know i had to uh block everyone on every platform that i had ever used with i had you know dealers included everyone um even people like uh, friends that I hadn't seen in a while who maybe drank a little too much kind of thing Gone. right mm. and this wasn't necessarily a, a holier than th- well, this actually re- very much is not a holier than thou thing where oh I'm I'm sober now I can't associate with you I don't trust you around me no no it's I don't trust me around you because mm. that aspect especially with regards to alcohol that you and I spoke about where well-meaning people will want to, oh, you know, have a drink. Here, let me get you a drink. That, there's going to be a lot of that. So not only did I have to block a lot of people, but I also had to really focus on recovery a lot. So there was a lot of doing meetings, a lot of uh, hanging around with people that were also in recovery. Uh, because especially at first, you're on shaky ground. You know, you're, Part of your brain is looking for any excuse. Any rationalization that you can make to drop it all and go back to it, especially once you're past that first couple of weeks where your poor body is just finally getting some respite. So once you pass that, I would say around the six to eight weeks mark, 90 days especially around that area, your body's pretty much fine at that point unless you've done something really life-altering. Um, and then you're, you, there's a tendency to forget all of the damaging things and you're only thinking of the euphoric sensations that you had. So being mindful of who you can be around, uh, being mindful of the types of scenarios that you can do, say if a, a birthday party's going on at a bar, probably not a great idea for you to go. Or mm-hmm. if you must, to go with someone else who's also in recovery for a, hey, happy birthday, just, pa- just dropping in, and then leaving. So I mean, it, it's always up to the person to figure out what they can handle. But the the theme for at the start has to be extreme caution and probably going a little overboard in the other direction, at least mm. to reduce the risk of relapse. Because it, it's really, really very difficult to to get out, and and very few people do. So you really can't come in with an attitude of i think i should maybe stop this if that's what you're saying you don't mean it
0: Mm. yeah a friend of mine who uh was an alcoholic for years um had she had completely stopped drinking and she hadn't been drinking for maybe four or five years Mm -hmm. and she moved into an she was she um, moved into a new apartment and the previous, um, owners had left this rented apartment. They had completely gone. And there were a few kind of odds and ends in cupboards, like there often are, that they had mm. forgotten, like a few hair bands and things like that. And she found in one cupboard there was a bottle of whiskey. Mm. And she drank the entire bottle. <laughs> um, and then she was wandering around, and this was in Buenos Aires, in the city. And it it was it was summertime; it was uh, warm enough weather to be outdoors. She was wandering around, and she went into the uh, Plaza San Martin, which is like a a small green space hmm. right in the kind of heart of the city. I I mean, it's like going to Central Park or something. Hmm. And um, she lay down on a bench there. Um, and she just cogged out there mm. all night and afterwards uh, you know the the kind of how dangerous that could have been
2: oh, yeah,
0: it's just uh, it's just kind of extraordinary. nothing happened to her. she was absolutely fine. she woke up, she hadn't even been robbed or anything <laughs> just, her handbag was okay. lying next to her. And her money was still in it, which is kind of extraordinary, especially in Buenos Aires. Um, but uh, you know, anything could have could have happened at that stage. Oh, I think she also, before she went to the park, she went to a tango event um, and um, had had a lot of interactions with people, which she doesn't had completely blanked out afterwards. Oh, so who knows what went on there? Um, But she went to this event having just drunk the down to the bottle of whiskey and then slept on the park bench. Um, And that was years after having given up.
1: Uh, Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing is that even though you are still on shakier ground and have to pay more attention and be extra vigilant at first, that's why – the language is avoided of saying I overcame addiction or I was an addict kind of thing because it, it's not to give the impression that you're never going to get better at all. It's more to reiterate the fact that it's a daily decision that you're making one day at a time, right? If you, mm. if you come to think that, oh, I've checked all the boxes and therefore I don't need to worry anymore, what happens to your friend is more of a risk, much more of a risk. Um, I still don't keep alcohol in the house, even if it were, say, table wine or something to cook with. That ain't happening. If I have had people over and, uh, you know, my sister was over for Christmas dinner last year and I said, you can bring wine and you can drink it with your dinner and that's not a problem. In fact, I would rather you do that because I know that you like wine with your dinner and that's not a problem. However, The bottle leaves with you, even if it's empty. Mm. And that was fine.
0: That that was the rule my my friend had as well. Um, And I often had dinner with her like that. So I opened my bottle, I drank some wine, and then I put the cork back in and took the remainder away with me when I left.
1: Right. And it's learning what these limits are at first that you'll eventually… Be able to sort of chip away at the sort of hard line walls that you put up at first and you can go, okay, you know what? I think for myself, I'm being honest with myself and I don't actually feel any issue with that. I don't feel like I want to drink. I don't feel any sort of way about it. But I'm still making sure that those safeguards are in place.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um. One last question, which maybe you... Will feel that you've already answered it, but uh, someone asks, "What what the biggest lesson is that you've taken away from this experience?"
1: Um, I, I think that it would be that if you're th- that happiness is hard work. I was always wondering, when I was younger and when I was in the throes of addiction, uh, why I wasn't happy. Uh, and what what was wrong with me to make me feel this way? you know the very sort of life is happening to me kind of thing, and I'd say that what I've learned through getting through recovery to this point is that nobody feels happy all the time, that it's only because we don't feel happy all the time in the first place that it has any meaning anyway, you know that the that we have these lovely and fleeting moments. And that if you want to be happy, that you have to work for it. Um, I I really do think that if you want something done and if you want to change your situation, that you have to be the primary um, source of that change. And speaking personally, I was sitting expecting what I wanted to happen to just sort of fall into my lap. And it's, it's perfectly ridiculous. Why should anyone else care about what i want enough to enact it for me what kind of entitlement would that be it's it's um it's been pretty much a paradigm shift for me where i hold myself responsible for pretty much anything like that now and you know if something is not really my responsibility i've also learned to leave that to to the person who is responsible for it you know i can't I can only handle, and barely sometimes it feels like, my own magisterium, right? So mm-hmm. I, I can't possibly be responsible for anyone else's. And, and in fact, I w- I find that I used to be so much more concerned with worldly causes and these huge societal problems. Um, but learning to focus on my own and to only take what's mine and leave what's not for everywhere else, I think that's been my biggest takeaway from from the whole thing, and one of the big things that keeps me on the right path.
0: Mm, very wise, um, Adam. Uh, is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say?
1: Pretty much covered some good ground here. I was, uh, I've gone through two cups of tea too, so.
0: Um, <laughs> Yes, in case anyone doesn't know, it is mandatory that all guests must drink tea during this the recording of the podcast.
1: Yeah, I know. As long as Helen doesn't uh, doesn't interrogate me for my methods of making it afterwards, because I have a feeling that I would I would anger a good many British people from from that. I, I was never caught oh, your way. Yes.
0: Uh yes, and well, um, if you are making the tea incorrectly, Helen will be. As soon as lockdown is lifted, she will be on the next flight out to Montreal to demonstrate to you, because she she cannot tolerate um, the existence of people making tea in ways that she feels are ethically unacceptable.
1: I would expect no less. Of course.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Adam. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and. To- hear you telling your story so articulately.
1: Thanks for having me, and it was a it was a real pleasure talking to you as well.
0: Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 t you can also find us on Twitter at two forTe PC Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy and have a wonderful week.